Welcome back to Pro Football Network's premier fantasy football podcast. I'm your host, BJ Rudell, PFN's fantasy football director. With me, as always, is PFN fantasy analyst Jason Katz, better known as Katz. As always, you can find us at profootballnetwork.com on the fantasy tab or any other tab that interests you with football. Uh, we are, as always, getting prepared for the 2022 season. We have about six months to go. And this past week and a half, Katz and I have been examining lessons learned for quarterbacks, running backs, wideouts from 2021, basically the underperformers, uh, picking them out, talking about what could have been predicted about those underperformances. Were there any warning signs? And heading into 2022, what do we think about those players? And basically heading into 2022, how do we even get smarter about anticipating underperformers in general? We're going to wrap up this segment of our off-season schedule with tight ends. Uh, as we encountered, I encountered it myself, round four, I picked Mark Andrews in my 14-team league. TJ Hawkins said, no, Kyle Pitts had just been picked, and I had to choose between uh, 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 Hawkinson and, uh, and uh, Mark Andrews, and I had a tough call. It was a 30-second clock, because that's how I like to do it with drafts, and I went with Andrews, and the first two weeks, I was kicking myself because Hawkinson did better. After that, obviously, I was happy, and I won the title thanks to Mark Andrews, and that is not an exaggeration. My tight end was responsible for me winning several games, and I barely snuck into the playoffs, and then I won the title. So with that, Cats, if, if for those who say tight ends are, are a distant fourth, uh, which is true to a large extent, but if you have an elite tight end uh, compared to somebody's middling tight end, that could be a 10 to 15 point swing in a given week. That is huge. So I'm going to throw it at you, Cats, first before we even get started. Uh, did you have any success drafting tight ends this past season? I know you're in multiple leagues. Was there a tight end that made you happy to draft him when you drafted him? Uh, you gave me like two perfect segues into both the tight ends I wanted to discuss today. We'll, we'll start with the one that I actually drafted in two leagues. And man, I was so excited to get a value on Darren Waller in two leagues. These were two of my best teams. Actually, Waller ended up on both teams where I conveniently also had Cooper Cup. So I thought I was golden. Uh, little did I know that Darren Waller was going to be uh, one of the, I don't want to say worst, but he certainly wasn't a great pick at the 2-3 turn. And I want to get into why Darren Waller was a disappointment. And if the issue was uh, his performance or if it was drafting him in the first place, because that's the key takeaway here is we want to know based on what happened last year, is there something we can do to avoid, to avoid this uh, in, in the upcoming season? 2021, obviously a disappointing year for Darren Waller. He was certainly a bust relative to his ADP at the 2-3 turn. He averaged 12.1. PPR points per game after averaging 17.5 in 2020 and 13.9 in 2019. And the reality is uh, I'm going to take the heat for this one because as much as I was all in on Waller, he was never really worthy of his lofty ADP. Because what made his 2020 so great? Touchdowns. Waller scored three touchdowns in 2019, two in 2021. In 2020, he scored nine touchdowns. And the reality is these touchdowns they are a bit unpredictable. And I think what happened with Darren Waller and what served to kind of prop his value up, I believe that over the final uh, few weeks of the 2020 season, his 2021 value shot up like three rounds. Because this, this was a guy who from weeks five through 12 
in the 2020 season was putting up receiving totals under 50 for the most part. Then over the final five games of 2020, he had 200 yards, 75 yards, 150, 112, 117. And people saw that, including myself, and said, okay, this is the trend. Of course, he's not going to have 200 yards every week or 100 yards every week, but he's going to be this wide receiver one playing tight end. And as it turns out, that wasn't the case. That was just a five-game blip. And the takeaway for me is to not overreact to what have you done for me lately. Yeah. It's it's so tough because you look at his yards and his targets. Even if you take out his touchdowns in 2020, his yards and his targets were very appealing. And what jumps out at me, building off of what you're saying, is that he was actually, last year when he was healthy, he averaged almost as many targets as he did in 2020. Um, so one of the big issues that I saw was his catch rate. And I don't have offhand, to be honest, because as you all of you listening, if you've heard other podcasts, uh, Cats and I have done over the past couple of weeks, we don't pre-plan this. I don't know the names he's going to mention. Um, we really want to make this as organic as possible. Um, I don't know how many drop passes Darren Waller had, or if there were issues with, uh, in terms of how defenses were stacking up on him compared to I'm last year. I'm eight drops here for Darren Waller in, in 2021, which was Thank second amongst so tight that, ends. That that then sells the point better. Thank you, Katz, because his catch rate in 2021 was 74 percent, which is solid for a tight end. For a wide out, it's tremendous. For a tight end, it is solid. That's a round where they should be a good tight end is hitting is catching 67 to 77 percent of their targets, roughly. He dropped to 59 percent last year. Those drops obviously were crushing. Uh, the ascension of Hunter Renfro uh, was crushing. Uh, and uh, uh, you, you get that combination, and suddenly Waller is not the clear-cut number one, and he's not maximizing his value because that catch rate is is uh, painfully low for a tight end. I mean, he he left about if we take those drops, even if he dropped two, which I which is an acceptable number, I think, at that number of targets for a tight end. Um, you know, if you add in those eight receptions. You're adding in another 100 yards. You might be getting another score. And suddenly Waller is a couple points up, and he's a little bit closer to where he was in terms of a per re reception per game kind of level that he was uh, in, uh, in 2021, in 2020, excuse me. But yeah, 2021, those drops then were crushing because I saw that catch rate, and I just thought, man, this is a guy who was not uh, uh, playing elite football even when he was healthy. And now you have the extra added uh, competition of someone like Hunter Renfro, who clearly has distinguished himself as, you know, a top 16 fantasy asset if he is the number one for Las Vegas. And it's a question now of, is Waller a top six tight end going into 2022? Can you count on him as a, as a top five round pick or is he a fade? Do you have any thoughts on that, Kat? I think your second question is the most poignant, which is, how do we draft him? I think he's he's undoubtedly a top six tight end going into the season. But the problem with the tight end position is uh, oftentimes fantasy managers will view the top guys at a position kind of equally saying, oh, I want a top five tight end. I want a top five running back. They're not all created equal. The difference between the top tight ends and the rest of the guys is, is massive. If you look at 2021 PPR scoring, the aforementioned Mark Andrews leading the way with 17.5, which is one of the lower uh, top end numbers in, in recent years, you go down to Darren Waller, who was the tight end six in points per game. You're at 12.1. Uh, 
And that's those those are like wide receiver three numbers comparing it there. But if you look at like for example 2020, Travis Kelsey 20.8 leading the way. You can get to 12.1 by just going to the tight end four, which was Mark Andrews at 12.2. You go down to the to the tight end like 10, and you're under 11 points already. So the thing with wow. the tight end is, it, yeah, it, it's kind of levels off it's, it's at a certain point. Yeah. And if you're not getting the guy that's making a difference, then it doesn't matter who you have. That's so right. the key key takeaway is, like, if you had Mark Andrews this year, great. But Travis Kelsey, even at 16.6 fantasy points per game, which was great, you draft him in the first round. Uh, that's not good enough. He needs to be the tight end one by a sizable margin to be worth right. that pick. And he'll be the tight end one again this year by ADP. Uh, I don't know if he'll be if he'll be worth that. I think that we'll see him drop a little bit, maybe into the second round. Uh, but it, it's it's definitely it, it's tricky to evaluate tight ends because you need to do it relative to the other tight ends. And if I'm not getting an elite guy that's going to make a difference, I'm fine waiting as long as possible and streaming the position. Is Darren Waller going to be a guy that makes a difference in 2022? Uh, at this point, I lean toward no. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with you. Um, I think we saw this past year. I mean, you know, the Dalton Schultzes of the world and others um, are, are are always going to be sitting out there. So if you were paying attention, you can find a streaming tight end um, who can get you through and get you 8 to 12 points a game. Uh, again, if you're paying attention during the season. So to your point, when I reached for Mark Andrews, uh, at the time I thought maybe I'm reaching, but I knew there were five tight ends, maybe six, who could be top two. I thought, you know, maybe top three, but top two. And so I was betting on that. But if I didn't get Andrews and I didn't get Hawkinson, I knew that I was just going to wait. Because at that point, to your point, there's no point in uh, in, in the eighth round getting the eighth best tight end unless you think the eighth best tight end is going to be top three. Uh, or going to be getting 15, 16 points a game. Because if there's not a big differentiator, you might as well take a handcuff running back, an Alexander Madison, or Tony Pollard, or someone who can win you a couple weeks, uh, knowing that they might start a couple games, rather than just take a tight end that you might end up dropping because they're not panning out. Um, who else do you have, Cats? There's another name on that list. Yeah, you lofted it up early. I thought we were going there first. We pivoted. Uh, we're going back now to Kyle Pitts. And I'm really nice. excited to talk about Pitts because it it's kind of a different conclusion than Waller. Now, Pitts was a player entering the 2021 season I knew I would roster nowhere because he was so clearly overvalued for a rookie tight end. And this is not a knock on his talent at all. I fully buy into Kyle Pitts as this unicorn-type tight end who best profiles to like a, a, a lesser Calvin Johnson in terms of his like physical stature and athletic build. I, I'm all for that. Pitts is an incredible football player. But the only way Pitts was going to have any chance of returning fantasy value for where he was drafted was if he had the greatest rookie tight end season of all time. And guess what? <laughs> he did. His 1,076 receiving yards as a rookie are the most since the merger. Wow. Yet he still finished as the tight end 11, averaging just 10.4 fantasy points per game. And, but here's Incredible. the thing, though. Exactly. So he, he did what he needed to do and still couldn't produce value, which really shows and, and illustrates why you just don't draft rookie tight ends and you don't pay for the breakouts before they happen, which is another thing we'll get into later, which is kind of like in 2022, based on early ADP, you're kind of paying for the Pitts breakout before it happens. But we'll, we'll get into that in a later episode. Uh, the thing about Pitts, though, last year, and why I'm not going to knock him too much, I don't think this was predictable. 
because the targeting was there. He had a 20.3% target share. He just couldn't score based upon right. his yardage total. He had a, over 1,000 receiving yards. He had one touchdown. How did he only score once? He easily should have had more like six to seven. If we add six touchdowns to his total, he would have been around 12.8 fantasy points per game, which would have been about the tight end five. Now that's still kind of on the borderline of whether he would have been worth drafting, but at least he wouldn't have been a clear bust relative to his ADP. And one of the things that jumped out at me with Pitts, I love your analysis, and I talked about this during the season, is when Calvin Ridley stepped away from football, Pitts' fortunes changed dramatically. In the games leading up to uh, Ridley leaving, I think that he missed the Jets game, but he came back for the Dolphins game, got 10 targets, got a touchdown. But that was also a period, those two games leading up, when Ridley went bonkers. He had uh, 16 receptions. He had almost 300 yards. It was suddenly after four relatively quiet games, he was stepping up and becoming this monster, you know, elite tight end. Then Ridley steps away. What happens in the next game? Two catches for 13 yards. Game after that, three catches for 62 yards. And that's the way it pretty much was until towards the end of the season. You know, he had a couple pretty decent games, three, I think three straight double digit fantasy point games, but clearly not what you need out of a guy that that people are drafting around the fourth round in a lot of drafts. So to me, one of the things like what you're saying in terms of the unpredictability, for me, the unpredictability was if Calvin Ridley hadn't left football, uh, would that have changed the way defenses matched up on Pitts? Uh, and did Pitts suffer being a 21-year-old rookie uh, with an aging quarterback who's post-prime on a team where Russell Gage is the best wideout, um, and suddenly uh, Pitts is forced into a position of trying to manufacture yards. Um, I, I think it was an untenable situation. It's incredible that he got as many yards as he did, although about a third of them came, you know, or, or four, you know, 25% of them came in those two games. But I think if Ridley had stayed in, I think we would have seen a different result based on what we saw in those first few games. I, I like the examples that you bring up there in terms of pits because one thing we don't want to do is put forth an argument that doesn't say anything, which is like, because, you know, you hear people uh, often say, oh, he, he's got another receiver next to him. It'll take the pressure off him. Oh, he has another receiver next to him. Now his target share will go down. But when you, you see, so you can't make that argument without any context. What you did really well there is you put it into context and you explained why specifically Ridley being there would benefit Pitts, and it's not it's not just this arbitrary oh he'll he'll take pressure away it's the fact that Pitts was a rookie playing one of if not the most difficult position to learn for a rookie and then he's in there with 36 year old matt ryan who's clearly nowhere near his peak and the supporting cast of the other receivers uh, calvin ridley is he's a top 12 receiver in the nfl russell gage is is, is what he's a wide receiver three you have all meetings Probably on talent, right. he's probably top 40. Right. So, so th these are these are role players. These are rotational wide receiver three, fours are all of a sudden propped up into primary roles. And then defenses look at Kyle Pitts and they go, well, this guy looks very different. I'll lock him down and make these other, other guys beat us. So while it's great that Pitts was locked into this target share, it was too easy for defenses to key in on him. And I do think he would have benefited from another weapon being on that offense in the form of Calvin Ridley. That's right. And just one more stat um, that I just had to click on my little calculator to, to figure it out. He had a 66% catch rate, 65, 66%.
playing alongside Ridley or when Ridley was still in football, I should say. And then when Ridley stepped away, that catch rate dropped to about 56%, 50, uh, um, maybe 57%. Um, I can't run the numbers that fast, but the point is you could, you, you can see with that big a drop, a seven, eight, 9% drop in terms of catch rate. We don't know, we're not watching all the film to see, but statistics don't lie. And when you see that kind of demarcation of Ridley on the field, Ridley off the field, and you see Pitts completely transform from a budding star to someone who's catching barely half the passes thrown his way, and the target share going down, possibly, you know, inexplicably, because he is the second best weapon or the best weapon on that team. It depended what you got out of Cordero Patterson. Obviously, uh, Pitts is a more dynamic. Uh, a future star of the league and Patterson is 30 and, and, you know, had a career year, God bless him. But at the end of the day, Pitts should have gotten more targets. He didn't, there had to have been a reason for that. And my theory is that if, if he's not playing as a rookie, as a 21 year old alongside an elite receiver, you're really putting him in a tough spot going up against potentially the toughest defender in those situations. And that's partly also why, Russell Gage had a good season. Uh, I think I think defense is new to beat Atlanta. You had to stop Pitts. You didn't have to stop Gage. Um, and that was the big differentiator for fantasy. I completely agree with you there. Uh, so who else do you got on, on our list of tight ends that underperformed? I got uh, uh, Mike Kosicki um, uh, was uh, kind of, you know, inexplicably, uh, I think I've used that word uh, already, uh, uh, um, not utilized in a way that many expected. I think it took me about six, seven weeks before I said on this podcast, um, I think it was like my, my third week at PFN, uh, like, Hey, I don't, I don't know that this guy is, uh, is going to do it this year. <laughs> He's, and it's no knock on him. I mean, he had a, a career high receptions, uh, career high yards, uh, the red zone usage was not what it needed to be. He got only two scores. Um, but you would expect um, with a guy in a team like this where Will Fuller was out for basically the year, where Preston uh, 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 Williams basically out, uh, Devontae Parker, uh, uh, you know, not what he was. Um, and obviously the ascension of uh, Jalen Waddell. But the running game was the second worst running game in the league in terms of yards per carry. This was a team desperate for playmakers on offense beyond Jalen Waddle, And I would have thought Gesicki would Mark Andrews' role of being a safety valve. And maybe, that, maybe that's not who he is. But in the second round, he was expected to be a franchise tight end. Maybe he's not being used as a franchise tight end, but it still shocked me looking back that on a team like this, that really needed to find other weapons beyond Jalen Waddle, who they finally committed to after what week five or week six, they finally just said, all right, I guess we're going to Waddle. Cause before that it was hit or miss with Waddle in terms of his target share. Kasicki never really caught on. And I don't know how I could have, you know, predicted that. I thought Kasicki would be top eight, top nine tight end, pretty safe, um, you know, with a top six upside if things broke right. And it turned out he just wasn't the kind of volume play and wasn't the TD play. Uh, what do you think, Katz? Is it, am I missing something with that? Going into 2022, you know, what do we look for in a guy like this? Is there still growth potential? He did have more targets than ever before. 
It just didn't translate on the fantasy page. Heading into 2021, I remember I had Mike Kosicki ranked as my tight end 20 for redraft. I had him behind wow. some players that I probably shouldn't have had him behind. I, I remember sitting down in my, my main league, and it's uh, I'm waiting on a tight end. It's like the ninth round. He's still there. Tenth round, eleventh round, and he t- nobody would take him. And I, I eventually, and I didn't want him at all. I had no interest in Kosicki. But we get to the fifteenth round, and there's two rounds left. I'm like, okay, at this point, I've got to take him. So I draft Kosicki. Sure enough, week one, goose egg. I drop him right away. I, I had enough. I didn't want him. And right. after that, he had a decent week two. He pops in weeks three and four. I'm like, oh man, I made a serious mistake. And ultimately, I probably did make a mistake. I probably should have kept him, even though I was able to maneuver the position throughout the season. But the reality is the reason that I was fading Kosicki, and I, I never really liked him as a prospect. I thought he was kind of a t-shirt and short superstar. Uh, he's certainly been better than that in the NFL. Uh, but if we look at his career, four years in the NFL, what has he shown us that he's that he's this you know top end tight end? Uh, rookie season, they'll dismiss. He averaged like three fantasy points per game. It's his rookie year doesn't matter. Then we get into his second year, nine point two fantasy points per game. Third year, ten point six. Fourth year. 9.6. So he's been relatively consistent over the past three years. This is what he is. He's a borderline tight end one, high tight end two. There's use for that in fantasy. There's use for that on the Dolphins. And I think this idea that he's that he would emerge into this a uh, wide receiver like type player, I think that it is uh, it's a bit of a fantasy created by fantasy managers that just like him. And I just don't see him ever being this thousand yard receiver. He, this is who he is. He's going to be a guy who catches. 60 to 70 balls. He's got 700 to 800 receiving yards, and hopefully he scores more than two touchdowns. Can he be a low-end tight end one? Of course, but I don't see any serious upside with Kosicki, but he will be a tight end that I'm just fine with taking like later in the rounds, much like I was this past year reluctantly. Yeah, I'm uh, well said, and I, I'm struck by the fact I just had to look this up to because I remember I, I knew he had a lot of targets, and I wanted to look. He was the, the third most targeted tight end in the league. So that's that's a pretty high, you know, uh, that, that's a regression risk right there. If you're the third highest targeted tight end, um, and your your yardage and your receptions are are barely modest for that target rate, ta- target share, the touchdowns could change. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think a lot of it depends on how dynamic this offense is next year when your running game is averaging 3.4 yards a carry. Um, that puts a lot of strain. Uh, you know, if if you're if you're basically, you know, second and seven, third and four, and then uh, you know, Tua is is going mostly to waddle like a plurality of the time at the very least. Um, and then, you know, spreading the ball around throughout. But Kasiki's still getting, you know, his seven targets a game, give or take. And so the question for me is, are those seven targets quality targets? Are those targets where the dolphins are in the red zone? Or those targets where it's third and four, and he's you know he's helping to keep the chains moving, but he's not seen as that next level threat. Um, you know, if half of his uh, uh, receptions were for for first downs, uh, but the year before, two thirds of his receptions were for first downs. What I want to know is, and I don't have it in front of me to be honest, is what was his red zone usage? And I would say those two touchdowns are jarring but it's not a death knell for him. I still think if he's more utilized in the red zone and he can keep those targets roughly where they are, a lot of it hinges on who else the Dolphins get in the offseason in terms of another playmaking receiver to complement Jalen Waddle, what that means for Gasecki. 
do the Dolphins go out and try to trade for Saquon Barkley, for example, who's now technically on the market? Um, do they, you know, how do they upgrade their really inferior running game? And then what role does Gasicki play? Maybe his targets go down, but I think a lot of fantasy managers would be excited if Kasiki is the true starter, if he's a 100-target guy or a 90-target guy, if he's in a more dynamic offense, that makes him more intriguing from a fantasy perspective than a sluggish offense where he's getting a ton of targets. I have it here. I pulled it up while you were talking about it. Kasiki ended up with, depending on the source, 15 red zone targets last year. Is that enough? I, I don't know. I don't know if that's enough. What I do know is Kasiki is currently an unrestricted free agent. Will the Dolphins bring him back? If they yeah. bring him back, what, like you said, what will his role be? And there's, there's a lot of uncertainty right now because outside of Jalen Waddle, there are so many moving parts at wide receiver. I guess they have Devontae Parker also, but are they going to bring in somebody else? We, we, like, what, what are they going to do with their ancillary pieces? What are they doing with Preston Williams? What are they doing with, with Albert Wilson? Durham Smythe. You know, right. Yeah. There, there's a lot of. There's a lot of uncertainty regarding where the targets are going to go this season and, and how high up on the totem pole will Gesicki be if he even remains with the Dolphins. So, yeah. so it's 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 very early. It's too early to try and predict what Gesicki can do. But what we do know is that regardless of where he, he ends up, he will be a fantasy-relevant player. The question will be, and we'll answer that later this offseason, is to what extent. Yeah, and I, I appreciate what you're saying there because he is an unrestricted free uh, uh, he is a, a, a free agent. I, I'm expecting the Dolphins to keep him, but maybe that's um, uh, unrealistic. Uh, uh, if he goes to a team like uh, the Titans, um, uh, or if he goes to a team like the Texans, um, I could see a scenario where he's an immediate sharp, or even the Jets. I could see a scenario, and I think the Jets might might have some interest in him. That that suddenly he becomes a focal point more than he was in Miami. And that's unfair to say in terms of his target, might be fair to say in terms of red zone looks. Um, if he's if he's seen as more of a, an elite pass catcher, and he's not quite there, um, his, but if he can be seen at that level, he can get into that top six, top seven range. But to your point, yeah, there's a lot of that we don't know yet. And, and we don't know what's going to happen going into 2022, depending on where he lands. I've got uh, one more for you. Uh, it's a combo, uh, David Njoku and Austin Hooper. Um, some of this could be uh, uh, predicted on the fact that I've never uh, thought that Baker Mayfield would shine as an NFL quarterback. Um, I wrote him on my old blog uh, four years ago, three, four years ago, when he was uh, the preseason, I think he was sixth ranked or fifth-ranked quarterback in fantasy, and he was, I think, 15th on my draft board, and I got a lot of pushback, and I just I, – I shared that what he did in his rookie campaign, he beat up on a lot of the worst defenses in the league, and that, to me, was not enough of a track record to show that he belonged uh, in, in the upper echelon of fantasy quarterbacks or of NFL quarterbacks. To his credit, he's he dealt with injuries this past season. I'm not going to knock him for that. He, he, he's a gamer. He fought through it. Um, I still think the verdict obviously is out. Most people would agree. Is Baker Mayfield a franchise quarterback? Is he a franchise elevating quarterback? Can he get there? Or is he a middling quarterback? Uh, and that's just how he is. He another Nick Foles. Um, we'll, we'll know in the next two years, probably, but David Njoku and Austin Hooper, Hooper was the, I think the highest priced tight end when they signed him uh, a couple off seasons ago. Uh, criminally underutilized, uh, given what they paid for him. 
And David Njoku arguably could be better than Hooper in terms of a playmaker, uh, had one blow-up game not very well utilized. It just seems when you get these tandem tight ends, uh, it is the rare, rare team. You have to have an offense that is, you know, uh, elite, top two in the league, top three in the league, to be able to feed two tight ends effectively in fantasy. In this case, they seem to cancel each other out. Um, I had thought, given what they paid Hooper, that they would find a way to get him more involved, and they didn't. And I am just uh, uh, apoplectic uh, on on what to do, not just in fantasy, but also just looking at these two players who are, are toiling away in Cleveland and not having any significant impact on the offense. Um, and the question then becomes, uh, can either of these guys step forward or are they gonna, just going to continue to cancel each other out? The answer is probably cancel each other out until one of them leaves. But uh, what are your thoughts, Katz? Is there any hope? that we could see one step out of the shadows in a and on a team that is hurting uh, for pass catchers. And maybe Donovan Peoples-Jones, if he steps up. But right now, it's kind of Landry and who knows Landry's situation. Yeah, we don't know anything what's going on with the Browns wide receiver situation. We don't know what they're doing with Jarvis Landry. Uh, I'm, I, am not a Don for the, I am not a Donovan Peoples-Jones guy. I think that he is what he is. He is just a, he's, he's just a, a burner, occasional deep threat. Uh, we know Beckham obviously was traded midseason. They're they're left with a pretty barren receiving receiving core. When it comes to these two tight ends, if they both stick around, they are going to cancel each other out. We've seen it enough last season. In, uh, David Njoku, sixty three percent snap share. Austin Hooper, sixty seven percent snap share. Those are both very low, especially if you want to use these guys in fantasy. Austin Hooper had a thirteen point four percent target share. Njoku, eleven point four percent. Just just aren't usable numbers. And with your point about Hooper's contract, I completely agree. I don't understand why they would give him all that money to not use him. From a pure talent perspective, I completely understand it because Austin Hooper, is he's just a guy. There's nothing special about him. But, but that leads back to the point. Why would you pay him all that money if you weren't going to use him? And now we see reports out there that they're considering giving David Njoku $10 million a year. Like, like What are they doing here? Why are they giving all these players money and not using them? I know many people have been high in Joker coming out of college. Um, I wasn't one of them, but I mean, he's certainly an athletic player. And if he was, if his skills were cultivated, I could see the upside there. I understand why he's so tantalizing. At this point, we're entering 2022 will be his sixth year in the NFL. I do believe it if it was going to happen, it would have happened already. Uh, but I, I won't totally shut the door because we've certainly seen stranger things happen, especially with the Browns themselves, where they were the, the, the home of Gary Barnage, who broke out at like age 29 or whatever it was yeah, for those three right. years. And Jordan Jordan Cameron, I think. Oh, I, I remember Jordan Cameron also. I, I remember I was super high on him for that one year where he was good. <laughs> oh, and then <laughs> he was never good again. That and, and that's the irony of this. Cleveland, Cleveland has been known to suddenly find tight ends out of nowhere. And they have two guys, each of whom could start on, a, on many teams uh, in the NFL and be successful. But they um, it, it's almost a, a subtraction, you know, addition by subtraction, or, or maybe it's the converse of that subtraction by addition. But the point is, like we have seen, same thing with Odell Beckham Jr. is what we've seen with Austin Hooper, for example. He leaves Atlanta, where his catch rate in his first four seasons was around 75%. Uh, he was averaging about eight, eight and a half yards per target. And in two seasons in Cleveland, his catch rate 
uh, has dropped uh, over 10 points. It's about 63%. And his yards per target is about six. It's dropped over two yards per target. Um, he is he is a, you know, your typical uh, four catch, um, you know, three to four catches, 30 to 40 yards. Now, again, if the Browns were, you know, a Super Bowl caliber team, like they might have been if they had all stayed healthy and Baker Mayfield had been the best, healthiest version of Baker Mayfield, and, and that running game had just propelled them as it looked like it would the first four weeks of the season, um, then I could see a scenario where the Browns look brilliant. They've got all the pieces in place. Hooper can block. Like it, it all fits together. But from a fantasy perspective, and this is a fantasy podcast, we look at two guys who, and, you know, and I'm speaking for Hooper here, he was terrific in Atlanta at his best, his best seasons. He, he had stepped up into the top 12 realm. And now in Cleveland, he's used as just a bit player on a team that doesn't really have great receivers. So he's a bit player behind Rashad Higgins. Uh, and that is, uh, 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 again, a head scratcher. And I just can't imagine the Browns going into 2022 and saying, let's keep doing the same thing we've been doing. Um, and the only hope from a fantasy perspective, if you have Najoku or you have Hooper, is either A, um, they decide they're going to commit to one as a lead receiver and the other one is more of a blocker, or B, uh, they do a true tandem type of situation where the two guys who are fairly athletic um, can operate as kind of uh, hybrid receivers, and you get these two tight end sets where they become, uh, you know, every possession, they are threats uh, uh, instead of just being situational. Um, I'm not sure if they're built for that, if this offense is built for that, but that is the one hope uh, with those two guys, but it's a slim hope. Any final thoughts, Katz? Uh, no, I think we've said it all. I completely agree with your take on both of these guys. I, I think that what happens with Hooper and Joku will depend heavily upon how they are used and if they're both around. And also, again, Baker Mayfield. He wasn't healthy last year. We we don't know what a healthy, optimal Baker Mayfield even looks like. At this point, I lean toward he is he's certainly a starter in the NFL. Is he a franchise quarterback? Maybe. I think he could be headed down a career path where he kind of is that uh, maybe like a like what I think what we're about to see from Jared Goff could be Baker Mayfield's future. It's possible. Wow. And if that's the case, then I don't know if he's going to end up taking these receivers with him. I was so down on Odell Beckham heading into this year. And as it turns out, I was wrong. Beckham was not done. He was not the problem. Maybe he was the problem in the locker room, but in terms of his on-field ability, right. he still has it. And now we know he has it. And we know the issue was that he was just not getting the ball. And look, and that's, yeah. And I, and I think, I think it's very unusual just to do a, a, to build off of what you're saying, Kat, it's very unusual in the NFL to get a true apples to apples comparison within one player in a season. You see Odell Beckham Jr. on the Browns, not just this season, but last season. Um, and then you see him with the Rams with a different quarterback, a different system, a commitment to, to amplify his talents, his speed, his athleticism, his catching ability. And suddenly you saw a different Beckham. And it's fair to wonder if, if other Browns receivers, including uh, Najoku and Hooper, understand that. I mean, they know what's going on. They see that this team is is a this is a dysfunctional passing attack. Even when when uh, Mayfield was healthy, the question becomes: Is this team 
it, it, it's change or die in the NFL. And you change either by getting new personnel or you change by changing the roles of your per, of your existing personnel, whether it's depth chart shifts or a change in scheme to try to amplify the talents of your players. And I don't see the Browns. I, I don't think Njoku and Hooper will be this ineffective next year. The question is, what will the Browns do to amplify them? How much will they amplify them? Um, and I'm curious to see that. But Katz, is always a pleasure uh, speaking with you. Um, uh, and uh, a pleasure speaking with all of you, all of you listening. We know this is the off season. It's hard sometimes to get excited about fantasy football four, five, six months before a draft, uh, but hopefully you understand our excitement. Uh, we are here to present thoughtful, we hope, um, valuable, we hope, action-oriented, we hope, information uh, to help you get ready for the 2022 season. Uh, and next week, we're going to start shifting into free agent landing spots in anticipation of uh, the free agent signings that are going to be happening in the next couple of weeks. And in the meantime, on behalf of Jason Katz and myself, Pro Football Network, thank you for joining us.